Doherty, the 6'7 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. Clears it away to Doherty. Doherty going in against Floyd. For the layup, it's good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty. He is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. Welcome to the Rebound Podcast. I'm Matt Doherty, and I'll be your host. On this podcast, we discuss leadership and overcoming adversity in an open and raw kind of way. I became passionate about leadership in 2003 after I lost my job as the head coach at my alma mater, the University of North Carolina. I went on a leadership journey. Leadership is a skill that needs to be practiced on a continuous basis. I'm so excited for you to have the opportunity to listen to this podcast with Bob McKillop. I've known this man for almost 50 years, yet I learned some new things about him today. Not only the fact that he was engaged before he married his current wife, Kathy, and that he was cut three times by his high school team, and yet he kept dreaming and dealing with failure. See, success is not linear. It's not a straight line. There were many ups and downs in Bob's career. He transformed. He got better. He rebounded. He got knocked down, but he got off the mat. And when he got off the mat, he made sure he picked something up in the process. I continue to learn from this man. He's a mentor, a friend. He was my coach. He was my head coach when I was an assistant at Davidson College. My only regret is that this podcast isn't longer. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Bob McKillop. I was trying to do the math. I want to say I was in sixth grade, at least, when I got to probably meet you for the first time. Um, It may have been at the park, and that was probably 1974 when I was like 12, and that was 49 years ago, man. (laughs) So we're approaching our 50th reunion. Our 50th reunion, yeah. I remember seeing you probably either the first time you were coaching at Holy Trinity High School, and my sisters went there, and I'd go to the games, and I'd see you on the bench, and you'd a couple things I noticed. You always crossed your legs, which I thought was interesting, and your teams played extremely hard. The crowd was always very intense. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that. And that was like in sixth grade. And then we'd go to the park and I desperately wanted to get into the pickup games with guys like you and Kevin Joyce and Dick Seitler and, you know, all the other really good college players, ABA players. So 1974, 1976, how old were you then? I was 24 and I was born in 1950. So uh, 24 through 26, I guess I I was at the park playing, competing. And like all Irish kids, uh, you mature physically at a later date than uh, many other people. And uh, I I certainly enjoyed as I matured uh, the improvement in my game and the opportunity to play with such great players as Kevin Joyce, uh, who I think was the king of New York City basketball at that time, uh, Ernie Grunfeld, Julius Irving, uh, Tommy Riker, Bobby Carver, uh, the, the list of guys goes on and on and on. And I'm sure I'm leaving a number of them out, but competitive games. And it was a park mentality. You had to stay on the court. You had to win games or you would sit for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, get stiff and not be at your best when you got back on the court. So uh, it was a winner take all kind of environment. Uh, I'm not sure that we have that today in our world. It's much more of individual trainers and uh, you only go to a place where you're going to play the whole time. Uh, But this idea of uh, having to stay on the court, stay on park mentality was a a great learning lesson for 
me as a player, but also for me as a coach. What, what other lessons uh, did you take from the park uh, the, as a player? And and you were uh, the MVP at Hofstra in 1972, I believe. And you tried out for the Philadelphia 76ers. And what I recall was maybe the last cut um, that year uh, of the Sixers. Uh, so what, what lessons, other lessons did you get take from the park uh, as a player and then roll those into your uh, coaching philosophy? Clearly the concept of toughness, you, you couldn't back down because anytime you stepped on the court at the park, people were going to challenge you. Uh, you know, there's no referees. So we, you made the decision to wait, make a call or not make a call. And uh, as you made calls or didn't make calls, your reputation was either going to grow or get diminished. And, the concept of you fighting through a missed shot because you did get fouled, but you don't want to call a foul because you don't want to be judged as soft, uh, constantly tempted you. Uh, the idea of perseverance and adversity, uh, you sometimes would dominate the game and be up 7-0 in an 11-point game, and then you started to relax and, and, and coast because you thought you had the game won, and all of a sudden uh, they make a couple of lucky shots, and now the game is 9-7, and you're now getting tighter and tighter because you had relaxed. You had let your guard down and allowed them. You had given them a lifeline. Uh, there's clearly the concept of, uh, of teamwork. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, me dribble the ball 15 times and get a shot. It was movement. It was action. It was helping each other out. It was cutting hard, running hard. It was setting screens. So the things that were part of the park mentality in the 60s and 70s, uh, I, I clearly took them and incorporated them in uh, the way I fashioned our belief as a, a program in terms of our system of play. We talk on, on this podcast, it's the Rebound Podcast, Rebounding from Adversity. You get cut. Um, well, first, first of all, back up. You I mean you you went to Chaminade High School and then went down to East Carolina as a seventeen year old freshman. Is is that accurate? I, I actually uh, enrolled. I, I turned seventeen in the middle of July and uh, spent my whole first year at East Carolina as a seventeen year old. Yeah, and then you decided to leave. What what was that experience life? Because you know, it's life is pivoting, and um, you got to adjust. Um, nowadays, it's in vogue to transfer <laughs> college basketball. Back then, probably not so much. So, what went into your decision to attend East Carolina, and then what was your into your decision to leave and go back to New York? Well, I, I believe you have to rewind a little bit to even talk about my high school days. Uh, uh, my freshman year of high school, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, 400 boys in each class, and it was very competitive to make the freshman basketball team and the JV team and the varsity team. So freshman year, uh, i going to try out for the team. It was a Saturday morning, and uh, stupid me didn't realize that the buses that were going to take you to Hempstead, then Hempstead to Mineola. So you took two public buses. I didn't realize they had a Saturday schedule. So I missed the bus. Mm. So I started jogging to Hempstead from Merrick, which was maybe seven miles. Uh, eventually caught a bus from Hempstead to Mineola, but I was late for the first day of tryouts practice. Uh, you know, in our world today, mama, dad puts you in a car and drives you wherever you want to go. That wasn't <laughs> the case with my experience. And as a result of being late for that tryout, uh, I got cut. It was clearly noticed by the head coach that this guy shows up late for the tryout. What kind of, uh, and it deservedly so. Mm. So next year, next year, uh, I try out again and, uh, I, I had plantar fasciitis, which I didn't of course recognize at that time. My heel hurt. I had no idea what it was. And in phys ed class, I'm running around the track and my pain, my pain in my, foot and I, I can't do the phys ed workout because my foot was killing me. Well, the JV football coach is also the phys ed teacher and he thought I was soft. So when it mm. came to tryouts, I got cut again. You got cut as a freshman and sophomore in high school? Correct. And oh my junior goodness. Year, 
junior year, you know, you'd play pickup uh, in springtime and people would recognize that I could compete with them. Not that I was great, but that I could compete. So tryouts began in late October, early November for, for varsity. And they'd have pickup games in September and October. And I'd sit on the stage and it was a stage in the gym. It's a really old gym. Mm -hmm. And you'd sit on the stage and wait for the head coach to pick you. And after the pickup game occurred, he'd point to one or two guys and uh, put them in the game to replace the guys. And he always was going to be in the game. And a couple of the teachers, a couple of the brothers were always going to be in the game. And as a result, uh, I sit there on a stage and three times, four days, five days, six, seven days lapse. And I stayed there for about an hour and a half, two hours and never got picked. So finally, after not getting picked, uh, I, I, I had to get home to do, do a job to pay for my tuition. So now I miss seven days of work. So as a result, I stopped going to the stage after school and just decided to play CYO basketball, which is Catholic Youth Organization basketball. Senior year comes and I sit on the stage again and I get picked like the second day and I get the coach's attention and I made the team. So that's you, you didn't, you didn't make, you didn't play for your high school, freshman, sophomore or junior year. Correct. I didn't yeah. know that. And I've known you for 50 years. That's an incredible story. Why, why didn't you, you know, I say this in the face of adversity you have three options. You can quit or I use your line. You could blame other things and call it loser's limp, or you can embrace it. Um, why did you seem to embrace it? You know, my, my dad and mom had great toughness about them, and, and they, uh, you know, threw me in the water, and I was going to sink or I was, I was going to swim. And they threw me in the water <laughs> without a life jacket. And uh, you had to learn that lesson in the 50s and 60s. That was just a, a, a cardinal uh foundational piece of your life and you know the first day my father didn't drive me to practice when i showed up late i i had to get there on my own and when i did get cut sophomore year junior year uh, it was okay for my father because uh, my mom didn't graduate from high school my father didn't go to college and they thought cyo basketball was just as good as high school basketball so you could play cyo i don't have to worry about <laughs> you taking bus and paying money and getting uh, you know to to Shamanad every day and you'd get home and you'd be able to do your job and you could pay your tuition. So <laughs> it was a very, uh, he wasn't going and berating the coach for not taking me on a team for not, uh, for, for cutting me. But you personally, said, but you personally like the perseverance to say, I want to do this. Like, why did you want to, why didn't you accept it? I guess. Why didn't you accept that? Hey, I'm cut that, you know, uh, what, what was me? Matt, I, I dreamed about playing in Madison Square Garden. I would uh, watch those glorious games between uh, uh, NIT teams that would come in. Uh, you know, I grew up with Kevin Joyce, who was uh, a legend, and we'd, I'd, I'd play with Kevin all the time. He and I were, were like brothers. And uh, I could compete, not as well as him, but I could compete, and he knew that. And, and you know, we'd go to, during the summer, we'd go to, to Rockaway and play 108th Street, which is a legendary park. And uh, I was smart enough to have Kevin Joyce and uh, Brian Winters on my team. So when you played three on three, you didn't lose too many. And you <laughs> stayed. Uh, but but I, I was around people who played and competed and were succeeding at the high school level. And, and I burned and I watched uh, games at Madison Square Garden and I burned and uh, I wanted to be Bill Bradley. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was a day at Princeton University and. I wanted to be that. So it, it just kept me going. And I went back on the stage in my senior year, made it. And uh, believe it or not, I only started one game in my high school career. And that was only because I think it was Jimmy Pugh's uh, who started was six. So I started in this game against uh, Cathedral Prep. Nevertheless, uh, I get done with my high school career one year and uh, did not have the scholarship opportunity. I was going to go to Siena College. I had an academic scholarship there. Uh, the coach had asked me to, to come there and be a walk-on. And uh, the walk-on concept was uh, a little different then than it is now. Uh, you, you know, the, the scholarship situation was different then than it is now. And then in the springtime, again, I played with Kevin Joyce. and uh, But this time, instead of at 108th Street in Rockaway, I went into Malloy, Archbishop Malloy, every Saturday 
and played great pickup games there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, one of the concepts I've learned in life is that you're always on stage. Mm-hmm. Someone's watching. You, you may not think what you're doing is of value. You may not think what you're doing can be trusted, but you're always on stage. And we're playing these pickups Saturday after Saturday in the springtime of 1967. And I didn't know that Mr. Kerr and Mr. Jack Kerr and a Hall of Famer and a legendary coach at Archbishop Malloy would be standing on the stage at Archbishop Malloy and watching the pickup games in between baseball games because he's also a legendary baseball coach. And towards the end of that spring, Kevin Joyce and I were getting ready to go back to Long Island on the train. And Kevin says, uh, Coach Curran would like to speak with you. Mr. Curran would like to speak with you. So Mr. Curran brings me into his office and says, where are you going to school next year? And I said, I'm going to go to Siena. He says, do you have a scholarship? I says, no. He said, would you like to have a scholarship? And my eyes just lit up. <laughs> he, he calls Tom Quinn, who was the coach of East Carolina University, and they had a brief conversation. And within a week, I had a plane ticket, my first plane ride, down to East Carolina on an official visit. And... Um, Again, a different time period. It was a tryout, but it was illegal to try me out. But I didn't know anything about that. If the coach told me to play, I was going to play. And I played in this pickup game at East Carolina with the East Carolina players. And I got in a fight with the starting point guard, Tom Miller. No, you get in a fight in a basketball game? Yeah, you believe that? No. (laughs) (laughs) So I I get in this fight with Tom Miller and uh, I get my eye gets cut open. (laughs) <laughs> so uh they stitch me up because they can't have any record of me being <laughs> hurt in the game so the trainer um uh stitches me up without novocaine without cordis oh without any yeah you know deadening pain uh, uh you know dr- uh, medication and uh i get six eight stitches in my eye and after the ride to the airport, I flew into Rocky Mount. So after the ride to the airport, Tom Quinn says to me, you have a scholarship to East Carolina University. So that's how I got my scholarship to East Carolina. Now, I'm a 17-year-old boy from Queens, New York, mm-hmm. who lived on Long Island for a few years. You'll and never I'm, you'll never claim that you, you're from Long Island. It's always the city. I understand, and it's well-deserved. New York and lived there for the significant part of my life. So anyway, I'm... I'm um, um, 17 years old and I'm in Eastern North Carolina. Now, in 1967, a little different than it is today. Uh, you had the civil rights movement going on. You had the Vietnam War protests going on. It was a chaotic time period in our country, kind of reminiscent of today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was homesick. I was young. I was immature. I was homesick. First year, you had to play freshman basketball. I did pretty darn well. I started, and we won some games, got to have great experiences, played against Duke and played against Carolina, and uh, it was just a one to play against NC State. And just a wonderful time period for basketball, but I was homesick. I went home that summer and uh, questioned whether I was going to go back and on. Went back, and uh, I, I just had a brutal experience as a sophomore at East Carolina the coaching of Tom Quinn, uh, he really got to me. Uh, he uh, made it very difficult for me. And I played. In fact, my last game was against Davidson College and Charlotte Coliseum for the Southern Conference Championship in 1969. And that Davidson team was top 10 in the country. Mm-hmm. I guess I played about 20, 22 minutes in that game, guarded a, a legendary point guard, Dave Moser, or I should say I was matched up with him. I didn't guard him too well. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, I left that game and that event and that season and uh, I, I just the homesickness had just gotten to me and uh, four of our teammates were transferring and it, it just became almost infectious and I, I decided I was going to leave and went home and uh, enrolled at Hofstra University, was going to walk on there, do a construction job to pay my tuition and then I worked at Louis Karnasekis camp that summer. And Louis Karnaseka had an, one of his staff members would, was a guy named Frank Alasia, who was an assistant at Hofstra. He's the father of the legendary St. John's guard, Frankie Alasia. And Mr. Alasia says to me, you know, you, you deserve a scholarship. So come to Hofstra, redshirt, and we'll see what we can do for you. And sure enough, I, I redshirted. And in my redshirt year, I played every day in practice. And uh, I, I got a scholarship. And that, that's how it came to me uh, playing at Hofstra. 
And again, you're always on stage. So we're playing LIU and they had the great Walter Jones, who was a terrific player for the Long Island U Blackbirds. And back then you played at the Paramount Theater was where Sinatra sang. That was their home court. (laughs) And um, so Roy Rubin, uh, one game uh, (laughs) was at Hofstra, our home game, my my fourth year, which was my junior year. um, One of their better players uh, picked me. So I had to hit him back and (laughs) it led to a brawl. No. No, and then, not and a brawl, year, not a fight on a basketball court. <laughs> <laughs> next year, we go to LIU, play at the Paramount Theater, and uh, we win the game. I made two foul shots uh, in the last five or seven seconds to win the game. But I had very good games both times. And uh, that springtime, Roy Rubin gets hired as the 76ers coach and invites me to be a free agent, signs me. Don DeJardin was the general manager. They signed me as a free agent with the 76ers for $17,500. Wow. So uh, I go to training camp in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and uh, I was not the last cut. I was cut along with Steve Mix, who came back the next year and, mm-hmm. and got a ring. I was cut with Bobby Verger, a tremendous guard from Duke University out of New Jersey. And the three of us were cut on the same day. Uh, but uh, the, the story about that particular 76er team, they were 9-72 and 72 that year. The worst record in NBA history. So added all up, and I was cut from the worst team in NBA history. Well, your 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 journey, and and again, I've known you for fifty years, and I'm just finding out some of these stories, and it just it, it just adds to it. You know, the the uh, working through adversity, not dealing with adversity. You work through it, and you're 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 saying about always. You're always on stage. And literally, you were on stage playing at LIU. Um, tell me now, you get cut. Your basketball career is over. Something you invested in, you know, uh, with everything, every ounce of fiber you had. Now someone tells you, you're not good enough. You're done. And at that point, not many options. Maybe Europe, maybe the Eastern League. What did you do? It's a fascinating story because I had a chance uh, to go to Europe. And it was in the June and Kenny Grant, uh, one of the, the great players at St. Peter's and then a, a very successful player in Europe and a successful agent as well. Uh, Kenny Grant was a friend. Uh, PJ Carlissimo was a friend. Uh, Carmine Calzanetti. These are legendary high school and college basketball players back in the 60s. The three of them went on these barnstorming tours with a guy named Jim McGregor throughout Europe. And you'd get contracts based upon the barnstorming tours in the summer. And I was lined up to go on this barnstorming tour in July throughout the uh, European continent. And uh, I was it was engaged to a, to a girl at the time. And uh, the engagement whoa, 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 whoa. broke. Tap, tap to brakes. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Wait a second. A girl not named Kathy. Correct. Correct. Yeah, she was a cheerleader at Hofstra. Lovely, lovely. Lady. And uh, this is this is getting better and better. Keep 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 the mics open. So I um, uh, the engagement is broken. OK. And, and I just felt very guilty about leaving the country after breaking the engagement like I don't know what I was going to do by staying in the country, but I just felt very guilty about it. So I declined to go on the trip. And as a result, I had to get a job. So that's July. And I get hired by the guy who was my uh, grammar school hero in Queens, New York, Bill Permakoff, who was a, a teacher, a math teacher and the varsity baseball and basketball coach at Holy Trinity. And he got me a job as a history teacher and assistant varsity coach and head JV coach at Holy Trinity. So now I got this job and I'm going, I'm signed with the 76ers. So I, I have a cushion. If I get cut by the Sixers, I've at least got a job. Right. And I can remember there uh, during in the Hilton hotel in Scranton, Pennsylvania, during workouts, during tryouts, we'd go back to the hotel and I room with Luther Green. Luther Green was uh, another one of those legendary LIU players who had been with the New Jersey, with the New York Nets. I think they were called the Long Island Nets at that time. Had a couple of different years of experience in the NBA, ABA. I was rooming with him and, and he'd be watching TV at night and I'd be sitting, laying in my bed, studying a history book because I needed to prepare lessons 
if I was going to get cut because I'd have to go right into teaching from training camp. And uh, so I, I have that vivid memory. And then, of course, getting cut and then becoming a teacher. I never dreamed of teaching. I never dreamed of coaching. I wasn't born to coach. Wow. But that first year, it, it just excited me because it taught me the impact I could have, positive or negative, upon the future of, of young people. I had a great high school coach, even though it was only one year, Jim Schwartz, who had a marvelous impact upon me. I had a very challenging East Carolina coach who also had an impact on me. And I had a wonderful college coach, a magnificent man named Paul Linner. So I, I had these pluses and minuses in the coaching experience that said to me, well, you know, it might be something you can try. And lo and behold, that first year taught me what an impact I could have. And, and it was full speed ahead from that point on. What year was that, your first year coaching? And, and was it, uh, I recall, assistant varsity head JV coach? Was that the? 72 to 1973. And uh, in 1973 springtime, uh, the head coach, Bill Permakoff, was given a job at St. John's University as the assistant baseball coach. So he left Holy Trinity, vacated the head coaching position, and uh, I got lucky. They hired me as the varsity coach with only one year of experience, 24 years old, 23 years old, really. Yeah, isn't that amazing? 23, 20. I mean, when I was playing as a freshman for you, um, you know, you look at the difference in age, uh, I think it's about nine years, uh, but it seemed like it was could have been 30 years. Uh, as a as a young high school player, looking at you, you, you know, you're a mature man and uh, commanded great respect, but yet you're only 24, 25 years old. And, and well, I think one of the senior students at Holy Trinity used to call me Babyface. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> and you know a few other names I have, so yeah, that's that's one of them. Well, we won't divulge everything on this podcast because you have information on me as well. So um, <laughs> we'll keep this, uh, we'll keep this, uh, uh, you know, um, civil, civil <laughs> PG rated. There's a perfect example of rebounding. Uh, and, and that's been a life I've experienced uh, from the time I was a young boy until the time I entered into the coaching profession. I had many experiences at rebounding and, uh, perhaps that's one of the uh, the values and traits that I was able to bring into this job here at Davidson is to rebound. Well, let's talk about that. Um, you left. I was blessed to play for you for two years. I, I wanted. Nothing, I can't hear you, Matt. Uh, I know. I'm getting a little emotional, actually. So I wanted nothing more than to play for you as a freshman on the varsity at Holy Trinity High School. Um, the uh, I wanted to please you. I, uh, I remember playing pickup games in the park, and uh, you know, I wanted to be tough. I wanted to play hard. I wanted to show you I was good enough. And to be able to play for you for two years was a gift. So you leave to go to Davidson as an assistant. Uh, why? And then it lasted a year. You know, why did you come back to Long Island and coach uh, a different high school, Long Island Lutheran? You know, the challenge of working in a Catholic high school in the 1970s and perhaps even today was uh, living on Long Island, it was really difficult to sustain uh, a, a lifestyle that was comfortable, that was, uh, there was some security in your future. Uh, I, I want to say my starting salary at Holy Trinity was uh, $8,100, and that included coaching. I think I got $500 to coach. And uh, because of that, the teachers in all of the Catholic high schools on Long Island decided to protest and wanted to get pay increases. They couldn't afford to raise a family on the money they were making. Now here, I was just uh, about to get married and didn't have any children, but there were guys that two and three and four and five children and uh, making a very poor salary. So they went on strike 
And it happened twice during my time at Holy Trinity, in which we went on a, a, a teacher strike, which uh, I, I'm not real fond of doing it, but you have to have loyalty to the people you're working with. And um, we, we had these bitter experiences, and it was just tension between administration and, and teachers. And uh, there, there was a constant uh, uh, departure of teachers and no continuity. And it, it was a very difficult time. So I had an opportunity to double my salary. And that's $17,500. It's funny how you remember these numbers. Right. It was actually the same contract that was offered to me by the 76ers. So I had a chance to double my salary and become a college coach and do it full time. And I did not have to teach history. And uh, <laughs> But you were such I, a great I, history teacher. I mean, you taught me the capital the of India. I still remember it. Yeah, well, I, that was part of the creativity I had. <laughs> New Delhi. Uh, New Delhi, yeah, because there was a New Delhi across the street. From across the, the street. <laughs> but anyway, it, it, it evolved into the point where um, uh, I, I did not have to teach history, though it was a great training ground for me in terms of preparation, planning, practice planning, motivation, creativity. A lot of those qualities you need as a coach, you develop them as a classroom teacher, especially um, Afro-Asian studies, European history. You, you learn that stuff. Because you have to be prepared. You, there's vulnerability. You're always on stage. You walk into that school at, on a Monday morning, you got five lessons you got to teach for 45, 50 minutes, and you've got 50 kids in that class, and you're on stage with them for that 45, 50 minute period. What a learning experience that is. What a training ground it is for being a leader, for being a coach, for being a teacher. So, uh, this gave me a, a great avenue into going to college coaching and be a full-time guy. Now, Davidson, why Davidson? Well, you remember my last game at East Carolina was against Davidson. I, I had this, this glamorized view of what Davidson College was as a basketball program, as an institution. It was a great experience playing against Davidson, 11,006 in the old Charlotte Coliseum. Really? 11,006 in the Charlotte Coliseum and Independence Boulevard. Yep, Cricket Arena right now. What a magical building that was. It was one of the first big-time buildings in, in America in college athletics. And uh, I, I just reveled in the opportunity to be back on a Davidson College team as an assistant coach. There. And a guy who I always admired as a player, Eddie Biedenbach, was the head coach, was uh, the Pittsburgh Pirate, uh, a tremendous player at uh, NC State. And he became the head coach. And on that staff was myself. Uh, Rick Barnes was the volunteer. Uh, Jeff Buzdelic was the part-time coach. And John Cochan was the other full-time assistant with me. So, you know, Jeff went on to a, a illustrious career at the uh, um, Air Force Academy and uh, eventually wound up at Wake Forest, but had been in the NBA for many, many years. And, of course, Rick has done such a wonderful job at both Texas and at uh, Tennessee. So we had a group of young guys that would go get us, rolled up our sleeves, tied our sneakers tight, and um, we were going after it. And that first year at Davidson, we were just miserable, absolutely atrocious. I think our record was maybe seven and 20. We were embarrassed at the Indiana and Bloomington, uh, Bobby Knight. We were embarrassed by uh, Gene Cady, who was coaching Western Kentucky by about 25 points. Uh, we really struggled. And um, at the end of that year, uh, Hofstra University offered me the head coaching position. After, after one year as an assistant at uh, Davidson? Yep. Yep. So uh, I was recruiting two players, actually three players at that time, very intently. One was Thurl Bailey. Uh -huh. uh, one was John Carroll, uh, who played at DeMatha with Derek Wittenberg and Sidney Lowe. And one was um, Chris Logan. Mm -hmm. So Thurl winds up going to NC State. John winds up committing to Davidson and comes to Davidson and has a very good career. And Chris Logan was the last one to make a decision. Kid out of Brooklyn. And I, I thought he was the king key for our recruiting class. Mm -hmm. And he winds up coming down to Davidson and Holy Cross and chooses Holy Cross as a Brooklyn kid from New York City. Holy Cross was a lot more in tune with the culture for him than he thought Davidson. So I was really disappointed about losing Chris. 
And by the way, Chris and I remained in contact since 1978. And guess who's on a varsity? Guess who's on a basketball team at Davidson right now? His son, Sean Logan. So uh, interesting how you're always on stage. Yeah. The uh, So anyway, at the end of that year, we're talking May, uh, Hofstra offers me the job. I'm in the midst of this recruiting battle for Chris Logan. And uh, I, I can't accept the Hofstra job. I, I can't do it. Uh, they, they were not going to give me a great contract. Uh, they thought they had me over the barrel because I was a young coach. I was 28 at the time. Uh, and um, I go to the president of Davidson College and uh, tried to negotiate my $17,500 salary. <laughs> <laughs> you, had, you had tremendous leverage now, right? Uh, with yeah. the Hofstra offer. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't know that. I, I didn't know how to use leverage. The only thing uh, the president thought was that uh, you're an assistant coach at Davidson college. We'll raise you to $1,800, $18,000. So they give me a $500 raise and I say, geez, I can get more, you know, go back to Hofstra and, uh, lo and behold, I was just so outraged that he, he didn't give me a, a better opportunity to stay at Davidson. I said, and then we lose Chris Logan the next week. And I'm saying there's something in the cards right here. Well, <laughs> Long Island Lutheran calls me up and Long Island Lutheran offers me $35,000 wow. to come to be the basketball coach and run their summer camps. I mean, this was like, I could not believe that they were offering that kind of money. Plus, they would give me an opportunity to run my own camp, which could increase my revenue even more, my, my income even more. So I said, geez, we lost Chris Logan. We lost Daryl Bailey. The president wouldn't give me a raise above $500. We were 7 and 20 uh, $35,000 is $35,000, mm -hmm. you know. But, and I said, I'm going to go back to Long Island Lutheran in high school coaching. All I'm going to do is coach and run a summer camp, and I'm going to use that as a platform to just uh, do some things and creatively that I never did before in the world of basketball or anyone really did in the world of basketball at the high school level. Uh, so that's what I did. And I go back to Long Island Lutheran and uh, had a camp, uh, got hired by the Utah Jazz as a scout, went and did clinics all throughout the country, as well as in Europe, and began getting European players to come to play for me at Long Island Lutheran. So, uh, And I actually became a commentator on Sports Channel, which was uh, uh, the TV channel on Long Island, and they, they covered these high school and college games during the summers. Uh, I think it was uh, almost like the Press League and like the Eastern League. So I, I had a diversified portfolio of all of these experiences, all related to basketball, but again, building that resume, but also building that experience and you know, building that uh, ability to, to lead, to be out front, to make decisions, to, to be disciplined, yet to be very detailed about things. And it, it was an extraordinary training ground for me. Yeah, great success. Uh, probably, you know, obviously could have stayed uh, at, at Long Island Lutheran forever. Um, you get a call from Davidson College. To, to become their head coach. Uh, what year was that? And, and what went through your mind? Um, because sometimes we can get comfortable and, you know, not many. You know, I, no, go ahead. I, I did go experiences of comfort because Long Island Lutheran was very good to me and a very comfortable environment. And I had all of these different balls I was juggling up in the air, but joyfully juggling them. Uh, I was doing two clinics a year in, in Europe, spending 10, 12 days in Italy, 10, 10 12 days in France. And uh, I had my own camp. Uh, I traveled for the Utah Jazz training camp. I'd go out to Salt Lake City and, and, and be with Frank Layden and the Jazz in Stockton and Malone when they were just growing into the position. Uh, I, I, I had players who were very successful. Uh, Bill Wennington, uh, after you had graduated from Holy Trinity, Bill Wennington, Marco Baldi, Augusto Benelli, and got to go to St. John's games in Madison Square Garden. And uh, so I, I had this tremendous comfort level and it gave me exposure. It gave me a platform 
So Marist College offered me the head coaching position. I think it was in 84. And um, I turned it down. And they turned came down back. a college job as a high school coach. But people don't Correct. understand you were basically running a college program at the high school level, much like a Morgan Wooten at DeMatha. Um, you know, that 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 would probably be a, a fair comparison. Uh, you were yeah, young, Bob, young, young Bob, Bob Hurley. Hurley. Yeah. Yeah. Another comparison. And what. Um, uh, Kevin Boyle has done now down at Mount Verde would be another example. So I, I, I had this incredible, luxurious environment. And uh, I don't know, I, I wanted more. Uh, you, you know, I, I, there, there was something that was itching at me to, to want more. And in 89, in the spring of 89, I, I got a call from Kit Mars, who was the athletic director at Davidson. And I had gotten alerted to the call by John Gurdy who had played for Davidson and graduated in 79 when I was an assistant. And we had remained in touch and I had remained in touch with a lot of the Davidson people. Terry Holland was just a, one of the greatest advocates that I could ever experience or want to have. And just a great ally. And uh, Terry was marvelous in what he did for me. Um, so with, with this support group, I was able to get the interview and, um, uh, I remember the interview in, in John Kirkendall, President John Kirkendall's house, and uh, I was offered the position. But as I was offered the position and I was driving to the airport uh, to contemplate what I was going to do, uh, Sandy Carnegie Sr., who was the head of the Wildcat Club at that time, said to me, you know that Kit Morris, the athletic director, is not going to be here anymore. And it was my first inkling that... Uh, I'm just getting hired by Kit Morris, the AD, but he's leaving. So what kind of security would that be? So I turned it down. I don't know if you knew that, but I turned I think you were actually doing the radio or TV for. Uh, I was doing the radio for, that year uh, for, for Davidson, the, the year before you took the job. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I turned it down maybe in uh, uh, early May of, of 1989. And, um, they bring in somebody else and somebody else uh, also declined to take the job. And I'm in a, doing a clinic in Athens, Greece, like one of those clinics I told you about. So uh, Kathy and I are over in Athens, Greece in the intercontinental hotel. Uh, the phone rings and I pick it up and there's no cell phones back in those days. And I pick up the phone and it's John Kirkendall. How he knew I was in the intercontinental hotel in Athens, Greece. I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. And he said, Bob, we'd like you to reconsider. We'd like you to fly back down here and meet with a, a group of, of people, a select group of people, uh, John Belk, the, the, the great mayor alum and benefactor for Davidson College. Olin Nisbet is the head of Sterling Capital Management and another great Davidsonian and great benefactor. Uh, Larry Dagenhart, who was the attorney for the college and another great Davidsonian. And John Kirkendall. And the four of us would meet and um, we'd, we'd sort of sort out the situation and see if we could convince you. Well, Terry Holland had also called me and said, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you should reconsider. And uh, lo and behold, I get word from Sandy Carnegie Sr. again, giving me some inside information. Uh, Terry's going to retire from coaching at the end of this year and become the athletic director at Davidson. And that was like the greatest music I could ever hear to my ears was that I was going to work for this outstanding person and magnificent coach, Terry Holland. He was going to be my boss. What a, what a experience that would be because he's been a coach and he knows success and he knows leadership and he knows Davidson. Um, so it wasn't a lot of convincing upon a part of John Belk and John Kirkendall and Larry Dagenhart and Olin that got me to take the job. It was them plus Terry Holland, and I took the job. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, the twists and turns, the, the, the impact, uh, the, the, you know, always on stage and, you know, the decisions we make and the, the consequences, you playing pickup games at Malloy and Jack Curran sees you and he gets you to go, you know, scholarship to East Carolina, you leave and you, you end up at Hofstra there's just so many twists and turns and, you know, it's a 
a lot of that's a God thing, uh, but you also have to put yourself in that position. Let's kind of really ramp up the last 20 minutes here and talk about your career. And most people think of like Dean Smith and congratulations on your recent honor, the Dean Smith award along with Tubby Smith. Dean Smith was hung in effigy. He, he had a rough three years. Mike Krzyzewski was uh, almost fired. Uh, they, his third year, they lose at home to Wagner. The AD calls him in, Tom Butters, and he thinks he's going to get fired, and they give him a 10-year extension. Uh, those days are over. Um, but you start out, you have massive success as a high school coach at Lutheran High School, your first year at Davidson, four and twenty-four. Four and 20. Second year, ten and nineteen. Third year, eleven and seventeen. No, the second year was nine and seventeen. Nine and seventeen. Okay, well, I'll have to correct Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was there. I was there with you. But there's nothing like you know the head coach. You don't. You know we we can act like we as an assistant coach like we care as much and can feel as much, but you don't. And I, I deal with business owners now. I call it isolation. We call it isolation relief. You know, you're by yourself. You're surrounded by a lot of people, but you're by yourself. And I remember times when, you know, the door wasn't always opened in your office, you know, and, and I could feel it. And what was going through your mind four and 24, those first three seasons? And, and, um, how'd you get through that? Well, I, I think that, uh, you have to look at, uh, the record of your experiences in life. And you've heard me speak about, uh, always being on stage. I had countless failures and, uh, every time there was a failure, um, something happened to allow me to uh, get up off the mat. Uh, I would lie there and bleed a while. Then I'd get ready to fight again. And, uh, the profession that coaching is, uh, offers such vulnerability. So you have a chance to get knocked to the ground and lie and bleed. And, uh, the toughness that was, uh, I, I guess developed by my mom and my dad always seemed to get me over the hump. And at the end of that third year, I, I didn't know where I was going. I was brought to my knees as I never had been brought to my knees before. And uh, I started to understand that the biggest shortcoming I had as a coach at Davidson college was I had an infection. I had the infection of the disease of me. I was someone who had great confidence, but the partner of confidence was arrogance. I was someone who had great toughness, but there was no tenderness. Uh, I was someone who was all about commitment and working hard, but I was incredibly consumed by it. And in, I thought I liked our players. I thought I liked our staff, but I never showed that I liked it. Those all added up to ravage my body with this disease of me. And it was only when I discovered that I had to cut that disease of me out. And I started to understand that uh, confidence needed to be accompanied by humility and commitment need to be accompanied by care. And care needs to be accompanied by showing it. And once I started down that road and I started to coach myself to do that, only then could I be the leader that could coach a team to do that. And that was the great metamorphosis that I went through. This is the genesis of this uh, podcast is the rebound podcast. So, uh, and I, I, I say this, your life's impacted by three things, the people you meet, the books you read and the trauma in your life. So at that time, what person or people, what book, uh, and obviously the trauma of losing uh, impacted you and, and you rebounded from that. But what people were your encouragers, mentors, uh, and what books and, uh, uh, you know, impacted you at that time where you were able to uh, talk about learning and growing, you were able to learn and grow and, and spin out of that. 
there, there are two aspects to it and two of the building blocks of, I think, any successful life. Uh, one was family. They had sacrificed an extraordinary amount by leaving the comfort of Long Island and what we had talked about earlier, the kind of idyllic situation we had there with all of the grandparents and all of the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and come to the unfamiliar territory of uh, virgin territory for Kathy and the three children uh, of North Carolina. And uh, they had made that sacrifice for me. And throughout the process of defeat, they continued to um, be a, a cheerleading team for me. They continued to have the smile on their face and the, the hop in their step and the joy in their actions that made me aware of, wow, what a sacrifice they made. I, I've got to make sure that I do the best I can to, to keep them in the best position possible. And they had found great joy in the three years we were at Davidson. And it was almost as if they were telling me, we really like the fact that we moved here. Please keep us here. So that was pretty good momentum for me, a pretty good uh, impetus for me, a pretty good inspiration for me. And then, uh, you know, I have a, a very deep-rooted Catholic faith, and I'm not one who believes that, uh, you know, there's a tooth fairy, that God's a tooth fairy and grants you his wishes. But I believe he brings you to certain places in your life, and he, he wants to bring you to these places to bring you closer to him. And only when you get closer to him through this adversity or through the success do you fully understand what your mission in life is. And it was that deep-rooted faith that carried me forward along with the uh, inspiration of my family. And uh, to this day, those have been the, the two aspects in my life that have been the most powerful and influential and uh, life-saving. Yeah. Uh, amen. And, and thank you for sharing. That's awesome. Books. And I know you've mentioned this. Uh, we had an event uh, that you were on the panel with back in December uh, at a leadership celebration, and I'll do it again this December. You were on stage with Dan Lugo, the president of Queens University, and Keith Cockrell, the president of Bank of America. And you talked about this time of this period, this three-year period, and then a book you read uh, by Lou Holtz and, and the core values. I'm big on core values, and, and I know you are too. So share with us Please. the impact to that book. The book was called A Championship Season by Lou Holtz. It was a, a analysis of what they went through to win the uh, college football championship in 1988. And in the opening chapters uh, in his first team meeting in August of that year, he asked his players three questions. He said, can you be trusted to do your best? Will you be committed to doing your best? Will you care about each other and show that you care? If you guys can answer those three questions in the affirmative, we're going to be champions this year. It's the only time it was mentioned in the book, but it jumped off the page like it was uh, the holy grail for me. The words trust, commitment, and care. Immediately when uh, I read those three words, I said, this is it. I have got to take those three words and put them into my life and live my life based upon that. And then as I do that, reflect that to our team and our staff in the way I live my life and make it part of their life. And that's how this concept of TCC, trust, commitment, and care came into being at Davidson basketball in 1992, in the spring of 1992. And uh, it's been the cornerstone, the foundation, the, the building block, the first floor of Davidson as we've built for the 30 years that succeeded after reading that book. That's a, your life's impacted by the people you meet. Um, you know, people, your family, God, the books you read, um, uh, championship season by Lou Holtz and the trauma in your life, which was that failure that, you know, that adversity that you went through, you, 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 you went through it like a storm. And, and if you didn't go through that, like I, I talk, uh, it's about a mindset, right? It's not, it doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. Uh, how did that, besides the TCC, how'd that make you a better coach, maybe a better dad, maybe a better husband, uh, you know, uh, that 
going through that time, how did that help you besides the TCC? Uh, clearly, uh, that experience as a leader using those three qualities made me not just a better coach, but a better spouse, uh, a, a better father, uh, a better sibling, uh, a better member of this community. And, and it makes you better because it, it's your check mark each day. Coincidentally, as I did that, the evolution of trusting myself, trusting our team, trusting our players, trusting our coaching staff, trusting the administration, committing to be the best, not number one, not champions, but the best we could be. And then showing care became a part of every aspect of my life as a coach, but also as a spouse and, and as a father, and, and it just built it up. It gave you a habit. Habit is the greatest form of knowledge, and it, it created that habit within me. So I, I, can, I recall I would uh, drive to work each day, and I'm thinking as I drive to work, okay, how can I help our team today? How can I help our staff today? How can I help Davidson today? I'd walk up the stairs to the office, and I, I, that would be in my mind. How can I do this? That's servant and, leadership. Servant leadership. That's what you just defined. Yeah, that and, and so that became um, the framework upon which I did everything. Now, uh, I, I'm not a, a saint by any stretch of the imagination. I failed just as I've failed throughout my life. And every day I, I failed to accomplish that. But it, it would always come back to that point at some point where I was doing a little bit better each day in that process. And that's what the quest was, committed to do your best. I was committed to do the best. I didn't always have it, but I, I worked towards it. And as my career unfolded here at Davidson, I could see that just taking complete hold of my actions, my thoughts, my mentality, my relationships, my conversation, my words, my thoughts. And uh, all of a sudden it becomes part of who you are. Mm -hmm. And what, what a, a transformation that was, what a metamorphosis that was. And um, you just touched it, on, it, you just touched on Bob, what I was getting ready to mention. I heard Phil Jackson, a legendary coach of the bulls um, talk about, he felt he was a transformational coach versus a transactional coach. And I think that's kind of what you're describing. You went from, okay, we got to win this game here. Are the set plays, this is how you run it. And you tell people, and then you became that servant leader and kind of explained maybe the why showed trust, showed a commitment, showed you cared and you, your offense changed. You, you, you went from a set play guy to a free flowing within structure, but really handed the game over to the players. And that shows again, the trust that you had in them that wasn't your style when I played for you or when you first got to Davidson. Uh, so that transformational, you transformed into a different coach. And um, that's, 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 again, the genesis of this whole thing, rebounding, you going through that adversity, being impacted by people, books, the trauma, and figuring it out. And uh, you became better as a result and your career you went on this tear uh, all-time winning as coach at davidson college all-time winning as coach in the socon southern conference you end up coaching this guy named um uh what's his name uh steph curry what's it what's it like hey, listen I, I gotta respect your time we got four minutes what the heck is it like like i watched him and i text you after the game 50 points in a game seven at 30, whatever he is, 35, 34, whatever, however old he is. The record for most points in a game seven in NBA history. And that was a guy that didn't get a scholarship to the ACC growing up in North Carolina, goes to Davidson, takes you a jump shot away from going to the final four. Now you're watching him do his magic at the highest levels, but yet still showing humility class i mean what's that like watching him like uh, besides his parents nobody could be more proud and curious and 
impacted by the performances he puts on on a nightly basis on the stage. <laughs> What's that like for you? Well, Matt, you know, you, you mentioned the transformational thing, and that's a concept of believing in principles rather than plays, principles. And that goes back to that TCC. And when you, when you see Stefan perform, and you know Stefan as well as I think I know him, uh, you see him exhibit the qualities that you so want uh, your players, your your sons, your, your friends, uh, your family to represent. So the idea of confidence, remember, I had arrogance to start. Stefan has always had humility. He's balanced that confidence with humility. Uh, you mentioned about the style of play. Well, Stefan represents freedom. You can see he's free as can be when he takes some of those shots. But he has discipline that he uses before that freedom. So he, he he's on the roadway, but and he's driving at a great pace, but He's following the rules. He has discipline about it. He, he also has this capacity to be tough, but he balances it with a tremendous sense of tenderness. And then I, I think the final thing he, he, he demonstrates is that he preaches the gospel at all times, but only uses words when necessary. And I think the greatest description of that is what happened after game six, when he, he and Draymond spoke late that night or early that morning and said, we're going to talk to the team tomorrow as we get ready for game seven. And Stefan gave that pregame speech that motivated them and excited them to get to the point where they had such a, uh, a, a pronounced victory in game seven. So preaching the gospel at all times, he does that, but he only uses words when necessary. And he does that as well. And, you know, I, I think if you watch the way he plays, it's an exhibition of the way he lives. Uh, there's great joy. But this is, I think, one of the keys. A lot of people see with the eyes of the head and Stefan sees with the eyes of the head. Stefan also sees with the eyes of the heart. Mm -hmm. And I think if more people in life would see with the eyes of the heart as well as with eyes of the head, I think this world will be a better place. Well, a couple of things in closing. When you said uh, discipline, freedom, discipline comes before freedom. Dean Smith would always say that a disciplined person is a truly free person. And I never understood it, uh, what he meant by that, because it sounded confusing, like polar opposites. But by disciplining yourself to make good decisions, you have the freedom to make decisions because maybe you have money in the bank, maybe because you work hard in your job. So you're disciplined to show up. So you get the better job that has the more money that gives you the opportunity to buy a nice house and live uh, and take a vacation. And then lastly, as we finish up here, you decided to retire. Why? And you're, you're in great shape. You have great energy. Coaches are coaching <laughs> till they're 80. Why retire? And what is keeping you busy now? Well, uh, you know, you reach a point in life where you, you are not able to do things. Why don't I play pickup basketball anymore? <laughs> I mean, I know how to play. I can shoot it. I can handle it. But I can't do it at the pace or with the intensity or with the quest for success that I, I once had. And that's what happened as a coach for me. I could no longer get on the basketball court physically and work with our players and give them the tricks of the trade that were once such a vital part of my coaching and my teaching. I was shortchanging our guys. I wasn't giving them a full piece of the pie. And when you don't give them a full piece of the pie, I think that is sending you a message. And the message was very clear to me. You know, it's time to step aside. That's very generous of you, but uh, you, you have a lot more energy than a lot of coaches uh, way younger than you. Lastly, what's keeping you busy now, Bob? I, I work uh, on a part-time basis for the college uh, called leader in residence. I meet with students. I meet with faculty. I teach the class here and there. I meet with staff members. I meet with coaches. Uh, I just returned a uh, four day clinic in the city of Jerusalem. So I, I get great opportunities to travel and to deliver a message that you deliver in a locker room, but uh, I don't get to see practice <laughs> after they get the message. Yeah. 
Well, listen, I could go on and on. I uh, would, would love to ask you about your son coaching, taking over for you, McKillop Court. Uh, but I know you're walking literally across the street to meet with the president of Davidson College. Uh, you've lived in that house for over 30 years in an idyllic way, idyllic town, uh, amazing career, impacted so many lives, including mine. And for that, I'm very grateful. Thank you for joining the Rebound Thanks, Pat. I, I, I live in Camelot and I feel very lucky and blessed and I, I could not trade my life or have any regrets whatsoever. So thank you. Leadership is a learned behavior. You're a leader, whether you're a parent, a coach, a business owner, or a friend. We all lead in some way, shape, or form. Thanks for listening. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me at dartycoaching.com.